Prayer for Illumination. God of call, God of transformation, God of the Lenten journey, help us to discern your still small voice. Open us to change and growth that we may walk with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture reading is uh, Peter 1, <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 13 to 22, and I shall fish those out here in a second. Now, who will harm you? if you are eager to do what is good. <clears throat> but even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to guess that uh, the idea of Christ descending to the dead or <clears throat> descending unto hell is not 
that um, many of us are readily familiar with. Although certainly if you um, were formed uh, in a congregation that regularly spoke together the Apostles' Creed, that idea will be lodged somewhere back there. But it's not a very prominent idea in scripture. It is, however, an image of deep um, pastoral significance and uh, I think carries a lot of heft to it. And so today I want to explore um, this idea of uh, Christ, as uh, Peter says here, uh, going to make a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey. Right, so it can sound a little oblique. So um, here's, uh, so we're going to go through uh, what this might be saying, and then we're going to explore um, what it, what are all the ways we might understand this understanding of um, what, almost like what happens between uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So uh, we have here uh, an instruction about uh, instructions for living, instructions for living as Christians, um, and a clarity that uh, suffering is probably going to be part of life. So if you suffer for doing right, you are blessed, um, and uh, it is, um, and so, you know, it might come, it might be part of life. Uh, do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. Don't be afraid of the suffering, which in itself is a deeply pastoral instruction because a lot of human suffering happens as a result of humans attempting to avoid suffering. So running away from, uh, you know, uh, what looks like it's going to be a difficult and painful situation only to find ourselves uh, still in other difficult and painful situations. Um, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. So this is, a, um, this clearly assumes that we have hope, which is an extremely uh, needed word for us even today. Um, you know, we have plenty of news that could cause us, that does cause us to lose hope. And yet here we have an assumption that we have hope. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God. Okay, so I want to talk for here, here for a moment about, about this idea of Christ's suffering. The idea of Christ's suffering can be enormously helpful because we do have, will encounter suffering in our lives, right? Suffering of mind, of body, of spirit. To have a story that tells us that God not only um, witnesses our suffering, but knows it because God's own self has suffered. God has put himself um, out there in order to experience all the um, uh, variations and depth of human suffering. That is enormously powerful. 
you know, when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, to know that our God uh, has not only seen it, but has walked it. Very powerful. Where this can get dangerous is when we start getting the idea that it is Christ's suffering that is redemptive in and of itself. I mean, there's a grain of truth there, but when we start focusing too much on how Christ suffered for us, it can get warped into this story about how we are so awful and look at what this poor innocent man had to go through. And, um, there's a, and then we start getting going down the road of, of, you know, kind of, um, almost uh, there's, there's a, there's a phrase, uh, a pornography of violence. Uh, I think also you could say a pornography of suffering that, that you can kind of get so fixated by how much Christ bled and how much pain he was in, you know, it, that it, but, but if you read the gospels, they don't talk about that. They just, you know, like, yeah, okay, it was part of it, but moving on, right? Like the gospels mention uh, blood in in terms of when the spear goes in his side, um, but they don't, like none of the gospel writers get particularly hung up on how much Christ bled from his crown of thorns or how much he bled from his hands or his feet. Um, so when we use this idea of Christ and God suffering, it has power, but like anything with power, it also has some risk. So we hold it gently, understanding that Christ's suffering is not an invitation for us to go out and find more suffering so that we can somehow be more holy. Okay. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. Boom. This is exactly why we don't need to go out and find extra suffering for ourselves. It's done. This is the idea. None of us need to go find ourselves a crucifix to be nailed to because Christ has done it once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God. All right. Righteous and unrighteous. What, again, if you remember our, our sermon last week, right, we had this idea of, of Christ, this human who is without sin, not carrying um, the, the understanding of original sin that's been, you know, that, that is uh, this idea that emerges out of the early church. So Christ, this righteous person for the unrighteous, when we say unrighteous, uh, we can we can tend to think of kind of two ends of a spectrum. So on the one hand, we can think we can assume that the unrighteous are you know um, those of us who don't pay our parking tickets because you know like we live out here and what are they what's the city of Saskatoon going to do you know like come out and find us um or uh or on the other end we can assume it's uh you know extreme evil like um psychopaths serial killers when we talk when this passage is talking about the unrighteous what they're talking about are people whose actions and work destroy uh, 
human destroy not only or or attack God's goodness and the workings of God in the world. And this means people who are for whatever reason um engaging in work that is um taking apart the fabric of community and well-being. So we're talking about people um who are uh, people like um, uh, pimps, human traffickers, uh, drug lords, right? Rather than your kind of everyday drug peddler on the street who's trying to sell a bit so they can get their own fix. I mean, yes, they're participating, but really like the people at the top, you know, um, or um, arms dealers, these kinds of people. And so the idea is it's people that we really think are trash people who do not deserve a second chance or a 16th chance people who just should get the boot and what does jesus do but he goes and dies for them <sighs> you know like this jesus guy as soon as we decide that we're on the right side and other people are on the wrong side who shows up but Jesus, you know, on the wrong side. It's so aggravating. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So in terms, like we can sometimes assume that salvation is entirely a spiritual matter, a matter of the soul. And that is um, certainly present in Christian thought, but the Bible is very clear that Jesus dies a fleshly death. Jesus dies a death of the body, which means that we human beings have salvation in our bodies, right? It's not just a matter of getting through life until we die so that we can go to a better place. I mean, that unfortunately has been uh, a really important motif for many people through the centuries because life is so awful that that's your only hope. But um, Jesus dies uh, a death of the body. So we are um, redeemed and have hope in this life, not just the life to come, but this life, even this life with all the you know terrible stuff that we absorb every time we turn on the news. He was made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons were saved through water. Well, that's a run on sentence, but here's the idea. Way back, way, 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 way back in the scriptures, we have the story of the flood, of Noah, the ark, etc. And that flood comes because we've got these unrighteous people, God decides, and you know, that's it. Like, there's just no hope for these people. So God is gonna press the reset button and we're gonna start again. Of course, if you read about what happens after the flood and after that art gets to dry ground, you'll see that pretty quickly it goes sideways again. You know, so Noah and his family don't turn out to be saints either. So 
But what the idea here of this letter writer is that everyone, everyone living and dead is redeemed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the idea is we've got these, this, this, is, um, this letter writer is, is projecting a story back into the very early days of, of the stories of this faith and scripture and saying, okay, you know, even those people who died in the flood, even those people who were so unrighteous that God had to press the reset button, even these people who have been waiting in prison, and if you want to, you know, whether that's just kind of some kind of shadowy non-existence or whether that's actually hell, depend, there's, you know, that's, that's not clear. But the idea is they've just been hanging out, waiting. And what does Christ do? Christ comes down to the spirits who are imprisoned and sets them free. So there is some amazing artwork in the Christian church that depicts Jesus busting open the doors of hell, uh, grabbing Adam and Eve and liberating them and uh, kicking Satan to the curb while he's at it. Um, so this is a powerful story in Christian imagination. And I want to skip ahead to the last verse here. And um, before I go on to talk about what this image might mean for us. Um, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Authorities and powers made subject to him. Even the power of sin, capital S, as that external working in the world, even the power of death, even the power of the devil or the enemy, however you understand that, those are under the reign and the power and the authority of Jesus, of God. Now, it doesn't mean that the power of sin, capital S, is gone from the world. Uh, we know that. But it does mean that in ways that we don't understand, Somehow, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all holding authority over evil, however it manifests itself in this world. So, what does this mean for us? I spoke about who the unrighteous are, right? It's not people breaking the occasional rule. It's not the people who are such uh, so far outside the bounds of humanity that we don't understand and can easily write them off as aberrations. Unrighteousness is participating in anything that, as I said, undermines God's good creation and the workings of God in the world. And as such, it means that we all have the potential to be righteous. And this is, um, I mean, this is one of the baffling and horrifying lessons we learn from uh, the Holocaust, 
you know, it wasn't just Hitler. It was, you know, a whole bunch of ordinary people working as prison camp guards or ratting out their neighbors or, um, you know, a whole bunch of bureaucrats just signing off on the transfer of this many human beings from, you know, this part of Poland to Auschwitz. And so we all have the potential, not saying we have, but we all have the potential to participate in evil and perpetrate it. What this means is not that we are innately bad. It means, like we sang in the hymn, we can't do it on our own. We cannot fix this world on our own. We can't educate ourselves a way out of evil. We can't uh, willpower ourselves or um, uh, therapize ourselves out of evil. And don't get me wrong, I got a lot of time for therapy. Um, but it's not, you know, there is the, the power and strength of evil in our world. Um, alongside all the goodness i just want to make sure i'm not trying to say this world is terrible like this world is wonderful and amazing and beautiful and you know created by god and it has um you know places where evil is working we can't by ourselves break those chains and and if we speak of hell uh hell is something many of us experience in our lifetimes Right. And and um, we go through um, we all have times when we are devastatingly alone or where our suffering is just like, too much, whether we're going through divorce or uh, the darkness of depression, whether we are dealing with substance addiction um, of our own or uh, in the life of someone we love. Um, whether we are living through or surviving an abusive relationship or watching a loved one struggle in one, we know hell on earth. And so somehow within the idea of Jesus descending to the dead or descending unto hell, we also understand that God has experienced hell. God has experienced not only human suffering in all its depths and manifestations, God has, un, has experienced the absolute um, agony and of, of feeling vo for, forsaken by God, that God somehow has experienced the hell of absence of God. So in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We understand that somehow... God the Son is experiencing the absence of God the Father, even though God the Father is fully present in God the Son. It's a mystery we can't uh, chart out with diagrams, but we completely experience it, uh, experience and understand it in our gut. That there is no depth of suffering to which humans can descend that God has not also experienced. There is no darkness, there is no pain, there is no isolation human beings can know that has not already been walked by God. And so this, friends, this is a powerful idea we need to hold on to because we have and do and will suffer in all its glory and beauty, healing and hope and possibility. 
And so when in the words of our United Church Creed, we say in life, in death, in life beyond death, God is with us, we are not alone. It is profoundly worth saying thanks be to God because there is nowhere, friends, that we can put ourselves. There is nowhere we can go where we are not accompanied by God, redeemed by God, healed by God, and loved by God. We are afraid for just as the psalmist tells us, where can I go that you are not already there? Amen.